If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, we're going to look at verses 1 through verse 31. 31 verses. Is there a Chiefs game today? Some of y'all might be raptured out of here before noon. Uh, I remember a preacher saying once he had a guest preacher come into his church and uh, this guest preacher, he asked him, how long, do, how long can I preach? How long can I go? He said, well, you can go as long as you want, but they leave at noon. And uh, I'm going to do my best, all right? So hang with me. Uh, Matthew 24, if you know this chapter, you know it's incredibly complex. Um, there's, there's so many interpretations of this passage. I identified at least 13 different interpretations of this passage. And, and that's coming, these are godly men. These are men that hold a high, high regard for Scripture. So you got men that have been studying this stuff for years and years and years. They hold Scripture in high regard, and even they can't agree on what this means. Um, so in light of that, it'd be pretty presumptuous for me to get up here and say, I got it all figured out. <laughs> in fact, that'd be ridiculous, because I don't have it all figured out. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, there's some aspects of this I'm still grappling to understand what does it all mean. But at the same time, I think there's some very clear principles that God has given to us in this text. Some very clear and simple truths. You've got to remember that Jesus, as he's speaking here, he's not just giving a bunch of theoretical information so that we could sit around and debate this, this material and try to fit it in to our own theological or eschatological framework. That was not his purpose. He's speaking pastorally to a group of 12 guys who are incredibly concerned about how all this is going to play out in the end. I mean, they know Jesus, the Jewish leadership, doesn't like him. They see where this is headed. Um, he's about to tell them this temple is going to be destroyed, and now they're really concerned. What in the world is going on here, and how is all this going to happen? And Jesus speaks into their life, and he's going to speak words of encouragement and simple truths to them and to us. Some of these truths and the principles will, will be applicable to just the disciples prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Some of this is going to be applicable in our lives today, and some of it goes beyond us and speaks to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But there's clear and simple truths. So if, if you came this morning looking for a detailed outline of how it's all going to work out in the end, you're going to be disappointed, all right? But if you came this morning just to want to know the clear and simple truths, we want to keep the main things the main things. Clear, a good principle when you're studying the Word of God is make the plain things the main things, okay? Make the plain things the main things. That's what we're going to try to do this morning. Let me pray for us. We'll work our way through. Father, we thank you for your Word. We desperately need your help today, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would speak through your Word today, and it would be clear, and it would draw all of us to you. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Look with me at verse 1, chapter 24. Jesus came out of the temple and he was going away when his disciples came to point out the temple buildings to him. So Jesus, he's, he's had this interaction with the Jewish leadership. He's coming out of the temple, out the eastern gate, Mount of Olives. This is what's known as the Olivet Discourse. There he is, the Mount of Olives. And the disciples are looking back and saying, Aren't, isn't that temple building in that glorious? And the temple was glorious. It was incredibly glorious. Herod was a really good builder. He wanted to gain favor with the Jews. He... he put a lot of effort into making that temple glorious. It was said there was so much marble and gold involved in the temple that if you looked at it as the sun reflected off of it, it would blind you. I mean, it's, if you've been to Israel, you've seen the, just some of the foundational stones because it's all been torn down, but you can see some of the foundational stones. The foundational stones alone will put you in awe of this, this structure. I mean, some of the stones were, 
uh, 40 by 12, weighed over 200,000 pounds. And they're looking back and saying, Jesus, look how great that building is. Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 2. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus says, it's really great, isn't it? Well, it's coming down. Don't get too enamored. <laughs> it's obsolete. It's going to be destroyed. And look at verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? Um, you, you can imagine that this... This was shocking. Jesus has told them the temple's coming down. The temple was the centerpiece of life and worship. It was everything to the nation. That's where the, the glory of God dwelled. That's where the ark dwelled, the, the, the law of God. This is where you met with God. This is where you encountered God. And he just told them it's all coming down. And there, this was probably more than their minds could fathom. And they just want to know when. And that, that's typically what we want to know too. We just want to know what time is going to happen. You know? Uh, what's interesting is they don't ask why, which is a very important question to ask. Why does the temple, why is it, why is it coming down? Why is it going to be destroyed? Well, we know that to be true because the temple was just a symbol. And it's going to fade in the greater light of the substance, which is Jesus Christ. All those little sacrifices they brought were good, just reminders that you need someone who will come and will be God and will die on your behalf and provide a way to God. And what is the very next thing that's going to happen? Jesus is going to be crucified and the veil in the temple is going to be what? It's going to be torn from top to bottom and God is now going to bid men and women, come to me. The barriers have been broken down. You don't have to go to a geographic location. Now you can trust in my son, Jesus Christ. He's the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through him. If you trust in him, now you can have access to me. Isn't that wonderful truth today? Aren't you grateful today that the temple was obsolete? And so it's fading away. It's obsolete. But the disciples, they just want to know when... So really, the rest of this chapter deals with the when and the what. What are the signs? When is this going to happen? Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. That's his greatest concern. We're going to see this over and over again. He knows there's a good chance these disciples of his, they could be misled. Judas is going to be misled. Why is he writing? What are these things here for? Just tell them in advance so they won't be misled. He goes on to say, for many will come in my name, saying I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Josephus, Roman historians, Jewish historians tell us that there were many in the days of Christ or after his ascension who came, showed up and said, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm here. And they misled many. And does this not still happen today? Most notably, a guy by the name of David Koresh who came and said, I'm the Christ. But others have come, declared themselves to be God. And what's sad is he says they'll mislead many. Then he says in verse 6, and you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. So he says there's going to be wars, rumors of wars. Don't be too frightened. Not the end. Did that happen prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Yes. Does that still happen today? Are there wars and rumors of wars today? Yeah. Is that the ultimate fulfillment of this? No, I think there's, there's more yet to come. And then he says... Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there'll be famines and earthquakes, but these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. He says nations are going to rise and fall, and, and there's going to be famines, and there's going to be earthquakes, but don't be frightened. And, and does that, did that happen prior to the destruction of the temple? Yes. Does that still happen today? Yes. Is there a greater fulfillment? Yes. But, but we know this. We see these famines, the earthquakes, hurricanes just, just recently. Are these things not frightening? Are they sometimes concerning? Yeah, but Jesus says to us, don't be frightened. 
I'm telling you in advance so you'll know. These things are going to happen. We don't get too excited. We don't get too depressed when we see these things occurring, when nations are rising against nations and all these different things that are happening. Don't get too frightened. Why? Because he says those are just the beginning of birth pains. Now, I've never had birth pains before. (laughs) My wife has. But we know what birth pains are, don't we? It's just indication, isn't it? It's indication. It's sometimes a very painful, uh, from what I hear, a very painful indication that the end is near and something good is coming. Isn't that a fitting analogy that Jesus uses there? He says, when you see these earthquakes and these famines, when you see nations rising and falling, don't get too worried. Don't be frightened. Because those are just merely painful reminders that this earth is groaning and longing for its redemption. The end is coming and something good is on its way. So you don't be frightened. Look at verse 9. And they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and will be hated by all nations because of my name. Did that happen prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Yeah, all these disciples. That's who Jesus is speaking to the disciples. They're all going to be martyred for their faith in Christ. They're all going to be persecuted. Does that still happen today? Well, maybe not so much for us living here in America, but believe me, there's persecution happening all over the world. For, for the name of Christ, there's one thing I've realized that this world, this fallen world, they all agree upon. They don't like Jesus and they don't like Christians. No matter where you go, there's a hatred towards the name of Christ and those who would declare themselves to be followers of Jesus. But you know what? We don't get too surprised by this because Jesus told us it would happen. Don't, 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 don't get too worried. This stuff's going to happen. In verse 10, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. There's going to be betrayal. The greatest betrayal that they're going to see in the very near future is the betrayal of Judas, who will betray Jesus. In verse 11, and many false, uh, false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And again, there were false prophets who arose in the time of the disciples. There's false teachers today. Sometimes it's very blatant with guys like Joseph Smith and and Jehovah's Witnesses, those who bring different doctrines. Sometimes it's more subtle. But he's saying to you, there's going to be people who come and try to mislead you with false doctrine. That's why he's telling us this. So we'll be aware. So we'll be alert. So that we'll be taught to judge everything according to the word of God. That we'll be Berean in nature. That's what the Bereans did. They judged it on the basis of God's word. That's what we're called to do. Don't be misled. These things are going to happen. And it's interesting. He says, mislead many. That there's not safety in numbers, is there? You can't just follow the crowd. You've got to investigate for yourself. Verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. I mean, there's going to be lawlessness. Sin will be so rampant. People are going to go cold to the things of God. It happened prior to destruction, AD 70. It happens on our day. Is there a greater fulfillment? Yes. But then he says in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, this is very practical for these guys. Don't you be misled. Don't you be frightened. Because if you're misled, you won't endure. And if you don't endure, you won't be saved. Now, endurance doesn't produce salvation, but endurance is an indicator of salvation. We call it the perseverance of the saints. That the one who truly knows Christ will endure to the end. He says, you endure. You prove yourself to be faithful to the very end. And then in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And some say, how could this be fulfilled prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Well, to some extent, 
uh, at least a partial fulfillment. In Acts chapter 2, you'll remember the Holy Spirit will descend upon the disciples and they will preach the gospel. You have all these nations gathered in Jerusalem for Passover and they're going to preach the gospel in different languages. And all these people from all these nations are going to give their life to Christ. 3,000 people will come to faith in Christ on that day. Now, is that the ultimate fulfillment of this? I don't believe so. Uh, because he says here, when the gospel is preached to all the nations, then the end will come. A lot of people want to figure out, well, who are these nations and how many nations are left and how, far, how much further do we got to go before we reach all the nations so that the end will come. Listen, I think that's a bunch of nonsense to get too involved in that stuff. Here's what we know. If Christ hasn't come yet, there is still work left to do. And when will Christ show up? When the work is done. So what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Just be faithful to what he told us to do. Why do you think we give so much to missions? Why do we send people to Peru? Why do we send people all over the world and support the IMB? Because we're just trying to be faithful to what God has called us to do. This is what we're to be about until his second coming. And so he says the gospel will go out to all the world. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. He talks about the abomination of desolation, a lot of talk on this. Uh, I love it here. Matthew tells us about the prophet Daniel, which Mark and Luke don't, and uh, helps us better understand this. Daniel, by the way, if you want to study biblical prophecy, you've got to start with Daniel. Daniel is the key to all biblical, uh, most people want to start in Revelation, you've got to start in Daniel. You understand Daniel, you'll get this, you'll get the Olivet Discourse, and it'll help you better understand Revelation. But in Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12, it talks about the abomination of desolation. And all it is, it, we know on the base of Daniel and Matthew here, it is a person, an individual. It is evil personified, presenting themselves as God in the holy place, meaning the temple, doing something they shouldn't be doing. In other words, they're profaning the temple of God. Now, all scholars agree that this was at least fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Roman emperor who set himself up to be God. He went into the temple and he sacrificed pigs on the altar and forced the priests to eat the skins of those pigs and set up an idol to Zeus and made them worship Zeus. So we, at least everybody agrees that there's a fulfillment of this. Was there a fulfillment prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Yes, the Romans, they overthrew the temple, uh, they destroyed the temple, and it says that they made sacrifice to their gods in that place. Is that the ultimate fulfillment of this? No, uh, there will be an ultimate fulfillment with a guy named the Antichrist who's gonna set himself up as God, and he will go into the temple, and he will profane the temple, and that will be the abomination. But remember, who is Jesus speaking to here? He's speaking to 12 men, and he knows the destruction of the temple is coming, and he's telling these guys, when you see that, when you see this happen, what does he say? He says in verse 16, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now this is interesting because up to this point, what has he been telling them to do? Endure to the end, persevere. Now he tells them flee, what's changed? Well, when it comes to the gospel, we don't back down, amen? We don't back down from the gospel. We proclaim Jesus Christ, the only means of salvation. But when it comes to protecting buildings and temples, we run. That's what Jesus says. Don't try to protect an earthly building. That temple, you, I know you love it, but don't stick around. When this happens, you run for the hills. And he goes on to tell them, verse 17, whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things, um, the things out that are in the house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. He's saying this is a dire circumstance. All those other things don't really matter at this moment. Verse 19, but woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing, uh, babies in those days. I mean, if you've got children, it's going to be especially difficult. Why? Because we all know children are our priority. 
And he says, if this happens, it's going to make it especially difficult for you. Verse 20, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter. Winter is when the waters would rise. It would make made travel more difficult. Pray it doesn't happen then. Or on the Sabbath. If it was on the Sabbath, they probably had made no preparation. And so they weren't ready or prepared. In verse 21, for then there'll be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. He's telling these guys, knowing what's coming. And, and, and Josephus tells us that at the, at the time of the destruction of the temple in this war, this Roman-Jewish war that lasted for quite some time, that Jerusalem became a bloodbath. It's estimated that 1.1 million Jews were murdered or slaughtered during that war. And the tribulation was such that they resorted to cannibalism. He's saying, this tribulation that's about to come, you're never going to see anything else like it. It's going to be that bad. He's preparing them for what's ahead. Look at verse 22. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He says, it's going to be bad, but I'll be there. And I'm gracious and I'm merciful and I'm not going to let it go too far. I'll be there with you. And then in verse 23, then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him. Again, there's false Christ, verse 24, for false Christ, false prophets will arise, will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. He says in verse 25, behold, I've told you in advance. Those things happened prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Those things happen today. Jim Jones, David Koresh, others, they come, they present themselves to Christ. Sometimes they perform what appear to be signs and wonders. Don't you be misled. I'm telling you these things in advance so that you'll be alert to it, so you won't fall prey to it. Verse 26, so if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness. Don't go out or behold, he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe them. Verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. You know what he's saying there? There's going to be a lot of people coming saying they're the Christ. But he's saying here, when Christ shows up, (laughs) it'll be obvious. It'll be sudden, it'll be quick, and it'll be public. And no one will be disputing it. In fact, he goes on to say there, wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. If, uh, I believe you read Revelation 19, and there is a battle that takes place called the Battle of Armageddon, and God comes down with the myriads of angels, and there's a quick, decisive battle, and you don't want to be on the wrong side. And you remember, at the end of that battle, God says to the birds of air, come, feast, meaning vultures come and eat what's left there that remains as God puts down evil. Again, you know what he's saying? When God shows up, you'll know it. It will be quick, it'll be sudden, and it'll be obvious. Look at verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I believe he's talking here very specifically about the second coming of Christ. This is Christ's return. And what he says here, because everything prior to this is natural. Famines, earthquakes, tribulation, persecution. Those things are natural. This is supernatural. We don't have anything to compare this to. He's saying that everything that we consider stable and reliable in this world, on that day, it will shut down. You know, sometimes it's said, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know tomorrow the sun's going to rise. Well, not on that day. The sun, the moon, the stars will go dark. And people get frightened by a lot of things. Stock market changes, we get frightened, hurricanes come. Listen, on that day, imagine it when everything goes dark. 
As soon as I read that, I thought of, you remember the crucifixion at noon. What happens? The middle of the day, it's not a solar eclipse. It wasn't that time of the year. The sun goes dark. Why? Because the sun, in that moment, most believe, the sun was often represented as God. The count, it's not God, but it represents God. The countenance of the sun. Here you see Jesus as he is judged by the sins of man. The father who cannot look upon sin turns his face away and everything goes dark. Well, right here, do you know what's happening? Everything goes dark as the judgment of God falls upon the earth. And it says in verse 30, and the sun and the sign, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. You'll see some of those words there in your Bible are probably in all caps. It's a quotation. It's a quotation of Daniel chapter 7. I wish we could go there. Daniel chapter 7, you remember, the ancient of days, God eternal, gives to the Son, the Son of Man, the right to judge the world. In fact, you remember Jesus on trial before Caiaphas, they'll ask him, are you the Christ? You remember what he'll say? Yes, and soon you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And they ripped their clothes and said, we have no more needs of witnesses. And they beat him because he said, they said he blasphemed. Because to say that would be to say that you're, that you're the Christ. And that picture of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, if you read Revelation 19, you get a picture of this. The angels, the myriads of angels coming with Christ. This is Christ coming in all his glory. No man can look on God and live. With the myriads of angels, remember one angel in the Old Testament kills 185,000 men. Can you imagine the day when everything goes dark and then God himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, descends from heaven with a myriad of angels? That's called the day of the Lord. The Bible also calls it the day of wrath. And if you don't know Jesus and you've rejected him, it is a day of mourning because judgment has come. This is the moment where everybody looks around and says, what about those wicked people? It seems like they get away with everything. This is the day when judgment has its day, when justice, the justice of God falls on men. But to those who have received Christ, what does it say in that last verse? And he'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Meaning God will draw. This is, this is that promise that don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go away to prepare a place for you, that where I am there you may also be. It's the promise of Christ that if you know him, if you've trusted in him, wherever you might be, whether you're still alive or you've gone before and you're in the grave, he's going to draw you to himself in that good news. He's going to bring you to himself. That as Jesus said in John chapter 6, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and he who comes to me I'll certainly not cast out, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here we see a bigger picture of the end times. Four great truths I want you to take home. These are the applications. Number one, Jesus is telling, remember he's speaking to his guys. Number one, he's telling them that the, the things of this world are passing away. They look at the temple, don't get too enamored. It's going down. Faith and I have had an opportunity. We traveled. We're so grateful. Opportunities God has given us to go different places around the world. We go to these places. A couple years ago, we got to see Machu Picchu. Unbelievable. But listen, we don't get too enamored, do we? 
is all coming down. You know, in our current political climate, the big thing is, man, everything got to save this earth. And listen, don't email me. I, I recycle, okay? I'm doing all I can, all right? We do, we do, we do listen, we, we, we do our best to be good stewards. As Christians, there ought to be nobody who's a better steward of this planet than us. But listen, are we real worried about it? Is it keeping me up at night? But I'm here to tell you, if this world is all the hope that you have, the icebergs in Antarctica become a really big deal at that moment. But my hope is not in this world. My hope is in the world to come. These things are passing away. I, I, I think of 2 Peter 3.10 where, uh, where Peter says that the day of the Lord will be like a thief in, in the night in which the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements, think about this for a minute, the elements will melt with intense heat. Even Spielberg can't recreate that. It's all passing away. So he's telling you, don't get too enamored. It's all going away. Secondly, he tells them things are going to get worse. You know, the Bible, when it comes to this world system and this earth, it, it really has a pretty pessimistic view that things are going to get worse before they get better. He's telling them right here, you can expect there's going to be deception. People are going to try to deceive you. There's going to be false prophets. There's going to be false Christ. There's going to be false teachers. They're going to try to get you in all kinds of error. Don't you listen to them. He tells them not only will there be deception, there's going to be temptation. Is there temptation today to grow cold towards Christ? We hadn't come back yet, and boy, the sin looks good, and I think I'll just have it, live it up as long as I get a little life here on this planet, and our love towards God can grow cold. Our love towards the people of God and the things of God can grow cold. There's temptation. There's tribulation. There's earthquakes. There, there, there's famines. There's all kinds of things. There's downturns in the economy. There's upturns in the economy. The housing market crumbles. Hurricanes, tornadoes, all these things. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And there's going to be persecution. He's telling his guys, listen, you are going to go forth and you're going to be my witnesses and the world is going to hate you for it. And I'm here to tell you today, if you seek to be a gospel witness in your life, in your community, in your school, in your workplace, if you're going to seek to be a gospel witness today, you will face persecution. There will be people who do not like you. But we don't get too excited, do we? Because Jesus told us it was going to happen. But know this today. You seek to be a light for Christ. The great lie sometimes is that everything will just get better. I'm here to tell you today it might not get better, at least in the short term. It might get worse. But he says, you be faithful. You endure. You persevere. That you and I, why, why is he telling the disciples these things? Because he wants them to be alert. He doesn't want them to be misled. He doesn't want them to fall away. This is a wake-up call to us. Don't be lulled to sleep. We live in a great culture with a, with, a, with, a, with a place where we get to worship God with a lot of freedom. But don't be lulled to sleep with cultural Christianity. You stay alert. You judge things on the basis of God's word. I tell people when it comes to the end times, you really need to know one thing. Stay close to Jesus. And I don't care if you're all-millennial, pre-millennial, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib. If you stay close to Jesus, I guarantee you it's probably going to be okay for you. You're going to come all right, out all right on the other side because he wins. That's what the end of the book tells me. 
So you stay close to Jesus. You be prayed up. Stay close to God's people. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, don't forsake the assembling of the saints as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, here's the great day. We live in a culture today that going to church is, well, you know, I got other things going on, whatever. The author of Hebrews says, listen, as the day of Christ approaches and things get worse, Christian community will become more necessary. You go to other places around the world where where the church is persecuted, why in the world do they take such risks to put their neck out and go worship in some private place under the cover of darkness? Because when things get really bad, what you really need is other Christians to help encourage you as you seek to live as a light for Christ in a dark world. Stay close to Christ, stay close to his word, stay prayed up and stay close to God's people because it's gonna get worse and we wanna endure, we wanna hold fast. And finally, Jesus tells them, don't lose heart because I'm coming back. See, this is the great truth. There's a lot of disagreements on the interpretations of this passage, but you know what everybody agrees on? Christ is coming back. That's the great hope that we have. Do you believe this today, that God and Christ are eternal? They're sovereign over time. God began time, he initiated time, he intervened in time and space with the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, and he will draw time to a close. He's sovereign over time. And he's promised us that he is coming back. That's the hope of Christ. You know, you think about how did Peter apply this to his life and to his readers? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 5, he's writing to a group of people who are going through intense persecution. Things are getting really, really bad. And what does Peter write to them? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he says, God is great. I know it's bad, but God is great. Why? Because he's caused us to be reborn into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. He's saying to them, listen, it looks pretty bad now, but you hang in there. In fact, he'll go on and tell them, uh, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have to endure various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, the proving, that's the endurance part. And he goes on to say, even though you've not seen him, you love him and you believe in him with a hope inexpressible and full of glory. What do we know? Boy, things are gonna get bad, but we're just gonna keep clinging to Jesus because we know the best is yet to come. He's coming back for me, and one day I'll be with him, and that will be, as we sang earlier, a glorious day. But I'm here to tell you today, if you don't know Jesus, it won't be a glorious day. So that's the great question of this text. Christ is saying to him, I'm coming back. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day? People ask me all the time, are we in the last days? Yes. <laughs> what they're really asking me is, how does our president and our current country deal with the end times? I don't know. But we're in the last days. Every day from the resurrection of Christ to the return of Christ, it's the last days. I can tell you this, we're one day closer than we were yesterday. I don't know, but I know he's coming back, and the question is, are you ready? And the way to be ready is by trusting in Christ as your only means of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks very clearly to us. 
some big issues in this text, but you've cl- spoken with clear clarity that, that, that there's going to be some tough times. Things are going to get worse, but you'll be with us and you're coming back. I pray if there's anybody here today that's never trusted in you, they don't know you, they've never placed their faith in Christ for salvation, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them. They would trust in you with all their heart for salvation and you would give them the hope of Christ that they are yours and no matter what happens to them in this world, in the end, they will win because you won. Lord, I pray for those of us that do know you that we would hold fast. We would judge everything. We'd be Berean in how we react to everything. We'd judge it all on the basis of your word. We'd stay close to you in prayer. We'd stay close to your people knowing the day's approaching. Let us endure to the end that we might be saved. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way Christ might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ. We'll have pastors here at the front. Maybe you just want to pray. Um, Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. This is your time. Know this morning, you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.